From the Vaults, audio from Edmonton's past. This recording consists of an interview with Frank Burroughs conducted by John McIsaac on September 21st, 1982. This material was recorded on a 5-inch open reel tape and was digitized by an archivist on February 4th, 2021. This interview has been trimmed for length. To hear the entire recording, please contact the City of Edmonton Archives. Our interview today is with Douglas Frank Rose. May I begin, Mr. Rose, by asking you uh, when and where you were born? Mm-hmm. Born in Winnipeg on uh, April 22nd, 1919. And spent most of my life there as well. And uh, your parents were from Winnipeg? Both born in uh, one, my father was born in Winnipeg, and my mother was born in uh, Saskatchewan. And what sort of work did they do? Well, my father was an engineer, and my mother was, um, well, again, with, I guess, in sales work, and then married my father, and that was the end of her career, except for family. Indeed, and she raised, uh, in addition to yourself, no, how many? Just myself. Just yourself? Yeah, just oh. one. Indeed. And now you say you were, you were educated and raised in... Uh, in Winnipeg, you, you did all of your grades 1 to 12 then? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, local grade school. The first one was a, a Seven Oaks school, which was uh, named after the Seven Oaks settlers who came to Manitoba, and that was in Cologne, where I grew up. And then into Victory, and then into uh, from there to Centennial, from Centennial to University, and from almost through University and into the Army. Mm-hmm. Through the army and back to university, then to work. So you interrupted your university career to to join the Canadian Armed Forces. Yes, yeah. yeah from uh, fall of '39 till uh, I guess uh, fall of uh, well, almost the spring of '46. I was in the was in the army on a full time basis, and then after that, uh, tail end of it was going back to school. And then went back to the Manitoba telephone system where I worked on construction, summer mm-hmm. construction, when I was at school and working my way through college. Mm-hmm. Uh, I take it then you uh, you volunteered in 1939, right at the beginning yes. of the war. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if there's a volunteer or was a lack of knowledge on what you're going to get yourself into. But everybody at my age was going, of course, so we all went together. Mm-hmm. And which. Uh, Battalion or, or, or corps did you join? Well, I joined up with a uh, Winnipeg uh, regiment, artillery, uh, and the 13th Battery. And uh, from there, I went to an uh, administrative post. And then from there, into uh, another regiment, 6th Field Regiment. From 6th Field Regiment to back to Canada and served as an instructor for a while. Back overseas again to the sixth, and then again the thirteenth, and for a very short time was the uh, first, third fuel regiment, first division, and uh, ended up in hospital until spring '46. Mm-hmm. I, I think you went to England first, mm-hmm. I presume, and from there you went to the continent. Yes, I was on the continent for a fair length of time mm-hmm. uh, from D-Day and. Uh, Short, very short tour down in Africa of about five weeks with British Army, which was just an indoctrination type of thing. I wasn't on their strength per se as a, as a fighting soldier, but it was a Canadian sent down to sort of see how things were run by the British Army, which was very interesting. I take it that you saw action then being in the artillery. Yeah. Yeah. And what was your rank when you began? Well, I started off as a gunner. Uh, which is the equivalent of a private, of course, and uh, got into the signal section and rose to the giddy heights of the Lance Bombardier, which is the Lance Corporal. <laughs> and then they decided what they would do with me. We would uh, we went out on the training exercise, and uh, a lieutenant and I came to parting of the ways. He gave me a direct order, and I said it wouldn't work, and he told me to do it anyway, so I did. And that was the end of my signaling career. I decided I'd transfer out of the signals and I went on to the guns. And I stayed, worked up to a gun sergeant. And then I went to uh, officer's cadet training unit. And uh, then came back and was posted to a different uh, battery. And I just sort of went. When I finished up, I was uh, in command of the 78th battery, which is, is a major acting, captain acting major, which was uh, right from the Edmonton area. 
which was rather strange. And then I stayed in, then I was hit, I don't know, right at the tail end of the war, and I went to the hospital. And I spent, uh, from then until the spring of '46, uh, in and out of hospital. In England? No, in Canada. Okay. I spent some time in England, I spent some time in Germany, and a short time in Germany, then in England, then back to Canada. And I was in, in Deer Lodge Hospital in, in Canada for a long time. So I, I take it, you said you were. Uh, with the D-Day troops, so you must have been in the push right across continental Europe. Pretty well. Uh, I went along fairly, fairly luckily. I got hit uh, just in uh, November uh, of '44, uh, and then again in the spring of '45. But the first one was a very minor, and the second one was much more severe. Mm -hmm. So I spent almost a year in bed recovering from that. Okay. Do you have any involvement now? For instance, I, I presume you were with the troops that liberated Holland. Yes. You know, uh, and there's quite a close connection between yeah. Holland and Canada to this day. Yeah. Do you have any involvement with that? As no. Sort of no, I, I've never kept up the acquaintances. I stayed in the uh, the militia, which is the non permanent part of the army, uh, until I came to Edmonton in 1967, and I left there. I just sort of left everything of the army. I didn't bring any part of that, except the association of some people I know. Mm -hmm. And as far as overseas uh, contacts are concerned, uh, they've all disappeared, other than uh, regular soldiers who, in my period of time, now have retired and are out of the forces, so mm -hmm. there isn't very much contact over And I didn't, I guess really from where we were, we weren't really associated with civilians, because when you're in the gun position, or in my case, as a, as a captain up with the forward troops, there were no civilians around to make any contact with. And from a political point of view of meeting people in the Dutch government, a uh, captain was probably uh, one of the lower ranks to get associated with. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when you returned to university in Winnipeg, you received a degree in... in which I went, uh, then I, I was there, uh, went to uh, engineering and uh, finished off staff college with uh, the Canadian Army. And the, in the Canadian Army, you can go up to everything but getting a degree in engineering at that time. And uh, you had, then had to go to university to complete your time for a degree, which I never did do. So I, I got, at that point, I had the Army and had most everything in it as far as studying. And I, there was a, a need for engineers or near engineers back at Manitoba Telephone System. and I. Sort of had a feeling I was wasting my time, which maybe had been right or wrong, I'm not sure. But anyway, I went back to work at Manitoba Telephones. I had enough studying in the light by that time. So I stayed with them until 1967, and I left there. I was, uh, had served in various jobs. Uh, I wouldn't mind hearing a little bit more about your time at Manitoba Tel. Mm -hmm. You started out in which position? Well, when I was going to school back in uh, 36 and 37, I worked on construction with them in the summertime on pole games. And then, of course, that was interrupted by uh, by the war. And then when I came back, I went into the uh, the uh, maintenance area. And I worked in there for a length of time and then um, got into uh, a situation where I was sent to the engineering department where I worked my way through the various stages. I was equipment engineer, which looked after all of the telephone equipment in the province of Manitoba and the installation of it. And then from there I went to the plant manager, which was a job of looking after all the equipment once it was installed, and then went from there to general staff engineer, which was a very interesting job, because uh, you were responsible for all the new techniques and ideas and new equipment around the world. So I was traveling quite a bit, going to various countries and seeing what their developments were and what they were doing. And what they were proposing and what was coming along. But unfortunately, it was a position where um, my immediate boss and, and all above were, there was about two or three years difference than our ages. And um, I was going to sit there till I became 65, and I decided that wasn't for me. So then they called, and uh, there was a notice went out about general manager of Edmonton Telephones here in Edmonton, of course, and I decided that might be a challenge. I knew a little bit about it, but not a great deal. Is, is or was Manitoba Tel a public utility, the same as in Alberta Tel? It, it is exactly the same as, as Alberta Tel in that respect. Mm -hmm. It's a provincial utility, mm -hmm. not uh, municipal. Okay. 
and and so then you apply for the position here. Right. And obviously you, you got the positions. Right. And when I came here in 1967, the general manager of Edmonton Telephone, and I stayed there until 1972. I uh, went to be commissioner of utilities and engineering, and then in 76 went to be chief commissioner. Um, once again, backing up to when you became general manager of Edmonton, uh, what were your duties? It was, uh, was it a time of growth? or? Yes, it was. Yeah, I should think of it uh, 67. It was a very strange time, and since we're sort of speaking off the record about it, it, it was a it was a great decision point as far as Edmonton Telephones were concerned because right then the city was trying to make a decision whether to sell uh, utilities or uh, to AGT or, or just what to do with it. And they had sort of been uh, developing at a very low level with a minimum amount of reinforcement of the equipment that they had, but the result was that people were sort of making up their minds, well, it's getting so bad you better sell. Uh, and then, of course, there was a different attitude uh, to be adopted if it was going to be a, a viable ongoing concern. So, uh, when I arrived and uh, got into the nuts and bolts of it, I, I had experience through the Trans-Canada telephone systems, a, a feel of what there was in most of the telephone companies. But I must admit that in coming here, I was, I was pretty concerned once I was into it because I had never experienced anything like it. It wasn't because the people were in the... Uh, there was a lack of knowledge because of the lack of training. There was a lack of, uh, of, of uh, technical ability because nobody had been trained. And the result was, of course, it was the uh, funds not being put back in to refurbish the equipment. It was pretty well run down. And I just didn't realize how bad it was. And when I was into it for about two or three months and began to collect all the bits and pieces and pull them all together to find out what I had to do, I discovered it was just like starting over again. And um, I had come with the understanding it would be a challenge, and I was looking forward to that. I didn't realize how much it would be. But I had to sit and um, did a complete reorganization of the department, and then had to sit down and write job descriptions for every job because nobody really knew what they were supposed to be doing or how to do it. And I had to train people or send them away to be trained to do the job and then recruit people to fill in the gaps. And the end result was that when uh, about two years had gone by, the people themselves in Edmonton Telephone just responded tremendously. And, and uh, once they saw what other telephones were, companies were doing and what was necessary to do, they really took off and they did a great job. And I think today it's probably one of the, it's amongst the better utilities in Canada by far. As that debate about ownership was going on, was your opinion solicited? as to whether or not the utility should be sold to HET or? No, uh, I, I have a very strong feeling, and now as I think back about it, that, uh, that the question really hadn't been answered. It was a bit of a debate that was going on still, to some degree in public, uh, to a greater degree in private, between the politicians. And I think that I was brought here uh, without knowing why I was coming to this degree that if the thing did fall apart and I would go to AGT, that I was known in AGT and there wouldn't be any problem about my finding a new employment with, uh, with the other agency. But it, that didn't have come obvious until later on when I found out more about it. Uh, so that anybody here who was uh, in, uh, in the chair as a city employee and going over wouldn't really carry any of the prejudices to them to moving to AGT. But no, my, uh, my, I was told when I came, no, it wasn't going to be sold. I found out later by the grapevine that the question was still a question. Well, it, as someone who's seen a lot of city papers over the last 50, 60 years, this is a question that comes up, oh, every three, four years. That's correct. Indeed, it was just raised two weeks ago by yeah. Alderman Percy Whitman, right. uh, who suggested it should be sold. Yeah. Now, as a general philosophy, do you think this utility should be kept? Well, I guess I have two minds. First of all, if uh, if the city wishes to sell it because of the cost it's, it's incurring, and it means that under the present circumstances they don't receive any money for toll revenue, which is probably 50% of the profits of most telephone companies, and they're forced to exist on just local revenue, then the costs of providing local service 
are beginning to skyrocket and will continue to move up along the scale. The result of that is that people will compare Edmonton Telephone's cost of a monthly service with AGT and say, what about this? There's no way that this should continue. Now, if one says, all right, at that point, we'll sell it because we can't afford to keep it any longer, it's too expensive, well, let's say that maybe, uh, uh, well, let's pick a figure, $100 million is what the selling price was, considering how much debt there is and, and the equity that's there. If they got $100 million and put that in the bank so that it uh, gave revenue to the city every year the same way as the utilities do at the moment, then that would be a good thing. But I have a great fear that politicians would find that they want to build a, a science center or a convention center or a Taj Mahal or something, and perhaps in about five or six years there wouldn't be any hundred million dollars and there wouldn't be any utility and there wouldn't be any income from a good viable utility. I guess it really it's a question of, at the moment uh, that would only be resolved if it was put on the same footing as any other normal telephone op operation where they received toll revenue in a proper form, that there would be no question in my mind that the City of Edmonton should maintain it. If, on the other hand, they do not achieve toll revenue and do not get a share of that, then I think the other thing is true. I think the costs will gradually drive, uh, drive the cost of the telephone in comparison to other sites. The question of toll revenue, I, I, after a long, long debate, many decades of arguing, the city was able to get part of the toll revenue right. or the inter-province yeah. calls, but for anything outside inter, of the Yeah, inter-provincial. Yeah, but anything outside of the province or, uh, or country, they get nothing. Now, well, do you think they should? I think, I think the reverse is true. At the moment, the city of Edmonton receives nothing for provincial toll calls. I see. For anything outside of the province that receives a share. And the reason for that is, of course, because all of the costs of all the TransCanada systems go into a pot as a cost uh, against the toll revenue that's accrued across Canada, and then you receive those benefits back out of that major pot. So for any costs that are incurred on toll calls within Alberta, it goes into Alberta government telephones, and it's part of their own revenue. It's a different thing altogether. It's not intercompany, it's just within Alberta government telephones. And that's really where the difference is. In one case, the money from out of province was taken out of a TransCanada pot of money. Or if you were to give Edmonton the local toll revenue, the provincial toll revenue, it would come out of the Alberta government telephone there. There appears to be a bit of a, a conflict of interest on HET's part in that they would be the, the obvious buyer for, for Edmonton Tell. Oh, yeah. And there are also the people who have the power to say whether or not they're going to split the tolls. Mm -hmm. So they could actually, by saying no, we don't split, force Edmonton Tell to, you know, in such an economic situation where they would have to sell. Yeah. You know, I think in one case, uh, you know, you're talking about a political decision, mm -hmm. and AGT cannot, Alberta Government Telephones alone cannot make that decision. It has to be a political decision that's made between the city and the province, not, not two departments. And uh, strange things have happened in politics. Indeed they have. <laughs> it could very well be that there's some compromised position, or in fact uh, they do get torah from them. Mm -hmm. no, I, uh, I understand, just changing the topic entirely, that at one time, you served as uh, an ADC to the Governor General, You're right. but I don't know where that fits in in your career. Well, it was while, while I was in uh, Winnipeg and while I was working with the Manitoba Telephone System, I stayed in the militia, and uh, I became area commander for uh, from the Lakehead through the Saskatchewan border. And one of my chores was being ADC to the Governor General of Canada, and also to be the Lieutenant Governor of the province of Manitoba. It was a sort of an honorary job where he went off on a, an official visit or something. I would go along as his ADC uh, for whatever reason that was necessary, or uh, just a show of force by the by the forces more than anything else. But it was on. It wasn't in the regular army. It was in the militia that I was doing. That. So I was actually holding down a full-time job with the Manitoba Telephone System and acting as an ADC on weekends and at nights and the like. Now. Was this uh, position being ADC to the Governor General just when he was in that, that area between the Lakehead yes. and the Saskatchewan? Normally. 
except if there was something major that affected every province of Canada. Uh, like there would probably be, um, from time to time, there might be a dedication ceremony for uh, one of the regiments that was in Manitoba, or the artillery, or the engineers, where they would want representation from across Canada. It might be in Ottawa, it might be in Vancouver, it could be any city. Then I would probably be asked to go as one of the ABCs at that particular function. I see. And was it just for one governor general, or did, was, was the position changed? I think Vanier was around then. Was yeah. Um, they, uh, it, it, it was an appointment really held at the pleasure of the governor general. But in normal times, the uh, premier of the province sort of endorsed it, and if he didn't change his mind for whatever reason, he would just stay. And also, it was assumed that when you are the area commander uh, of the militia, that you would also be the ADC for the governor general. So it made it very interesting. You got to meet people from all over the world if they came in, and you could sort of sit in very casual conversation and sort of change their minds and see what uh, what what it was they. Uh, they thought about them. So, do, do any people in particular uh, come to your mind when you, when you think of that, that time in your life? Well, I suppose uh, meeting the uh, the Duke of Edinburgh was uh, one of the more interesting things. He was a totally different person from what I had expected. As a matter of fact, I had met him once during the war when he was in the Navy. And uh, without even knowing, you know, what he was about to become or what his uh, connections were, but uh, I and you know we'd said hello, good morning. I was in the army, he was in the navy, and there were the twain shall meet. But there's a thing about them. But was he in the Greek army or navy? No, 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 he was in the British navy. He, he was, but because yeah. his background is Greek. Oh yes, no, he served in the British I British navy. But he was very interesting to talk to when you got away from all the, all the trappings of the things that you would expect royalty to have and sort of sat and chatted. Uh, I found him a most interesting man. And meeting people like that was really a highlight. He probably doesn't remember me from Adam today, but on the other hand, I certainly remember his I should say you would. <laughs> and the various lieutenant governors that went through, uh, they were people who in their own right had had achieved something of worthiness to Canada or to the province. And you, you know, you knew a bit about them. You had to read up and discover what type of an individual they were. And always in those things, you, you want to see, like we were doing, you were saying, you know, why did you do this? You would always ask them in private if you got them into the right frame of mind and find out what really made Canada tick at that particular point in history, as they, as they saw. And those things were interesting. Got to meet all the premiers and uh, all the senior officials in the in the city that you know you would normally have never met. Your invitation was your uniform. Was there any uh, international travel involved with that? Not with them. No, no. All the international travel I did was from an engineering viewpoint and with the Manitoba telephone system. Which uh, now, when you left Manitoba to come to to Edmonton, then you 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 resigned that position as well yes. as your mil as well yes. as your militia work. Yep, I decided that that was uh, that was a good time to stop, and also it was a good decision to make because when I found out the amount of work that had to be done, it was well, it was fourteen hours a day for a while. Fortunately, my wife wasn't here, so I had lots of, mm -hmm. and uh, I could spend it gainfully employed, uh, sort of getting my thoughts together. You were an acting brigadier general, I believe. When you were yeah, that's uh, that is in today's phraseology. Uh, people keep getting confused because of the changes in ranks that occurred about that time. What I was, I was a full colonel, um, lieutenant colonel, full colonel, and at the time that I retired, the area commander was a brigadier's job. Now, what has all happened in this world? Now a full colonel is a brigadier general. It's just a transition of words. So I, I uh, people today visualize one thing if they're talking about the old phraseology. But in essence, what I was, I was confirmed in the rank of full colonel at the time that I retired, which was the senior rank for the year. Be the 
second Brigadier General in the city's history, as I'm sure you're aware, W.A. Griesbach. Yeah. yeah. In 1907, yeah. he was... That uh, goes back into the First World War ranks, of course. Yeah, well, a lot of Second World War, he was a Brigadier General, actually. That's right, too. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. He was a uh, colonel of the First World War, I believe. I don't want to be quoted on that. I yeah, think that's right. <laughs> I think that's right. I think I read up on that at one time. Yeah. Yeah. We have his papers here at the archives, oh, yeah. incidentally. Yeah. I index them, as a matter of fact. Which brings us, anyway, back to your, your leaving Edmonton Tell and, and becoming a commissioner. Mm. Now, uh, what made you decide to apply for that position? Well, it's sort of strange. The same, thing, the same sort of history applies to my moving from, uh, from uh, utilities and engineering to be chief commissioner, but at the time that I was uh, in general telephones, Stan Hampton took sick, and he asked me to go over, or they asked me to go over to City Hall to run the, his office while he was away in hospital. And I did, and um, that lasted until Stan recovered and came back, and then I went back to the telephones again. Well then, uh, there was, uh, Peter Bargain was about to leave, and so they were looking for a new chief commissioner, and Stan was the appointment. And then I think Stan sort of made up his mind that he would like to have me over there as Commissioner of Utilities and Engineering. So I was sort of phoning up one afternoon and said, you're the new appointment to be the Commissioner of Utilities and Engineering, is that all right? You know, typical Hampton form, like, yeah, he'd made up his mind. You hadn't even applied. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that, that was uh, really what occurred. I, uh, I sort of was told that I had the job and I went over and uh, Council was advised, and that was it. There was no great posting or anything else. It just occurred. To uh, to find the replacement for your position today, it's costing $25,000. Well, it cost more than that by the time it's finished. No doubt. Yeah. So, so, so there wasn't any competition? Not for that job, no. There was for the, for the Chief Commissioner in 76. And again, I didn't apply for the job. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, sanity had begun to set in, and I realized the difference in the step between being a commissioner of utility and engineering and being the chief commissioner for the city because you go from a commissioner area where you're primarily responsible for uh, something that I understood and felt pretty comfortable with into an area which was highly political, at least 50% of it was politics. And I didn't apply for that job. Speaking of the uh, political side, now all commissioners and chief commissioners too are uh, confirmed, as it were, by city yeah. council. Right. Uh, there was only one alderman who, uh, who both times voted uh, nay, as it were, was Ron Hader. Right. The first time, I, I don't know his reason, the second time he said, if, correct me if I'm wrong, that it was the process that he didn't like. Yeah. But nevertheless, he did uh, suggest that he didn't want you in those positions twice. Is there any... Why did he do that the first time? Do you know? Well, I think the first time, uh, and I, uh, my memory is a little different from yours, uh, he, when the appointment was made, I think he said that he wasn't, uh, he understood that I was a very satisfactory individual, but he was against the appointment because of the procedure. And that was what I was mentioning before. There was no appointment. I was there, you know, here he is. Oh, that was an okay. Now, on the second time that it came around, uh, I'm not too sure that he voted against it, except, uh, as, as I remember, his views uh, were somewhat similar. You see, they went through the process of, of posting the job of Chief Commissioner, and uh, they went all through the list of candidates, uh, two of the commissioners that they were interested in at the time. We didn't apply for the job, and we were the only two that had been there more than a week. And so they went through all the list of candidates and came to the conclusion they really didn't like anybody that was approving the job. And people from outside were saying, there isn't enough money here to, to attract me. So at that point, they decided to come back and re-interview Tom Adams and myself for the job again. And the second time, I wasn't, I wasn't really convinced that I wanted to do it. Um, I was fast getting to a point where I felt more of my own time, and I realized what it, what it would mean to uh, do the job. However, they, they went around that again and then came back and said, well, would you consider it if and they made certain changes to the organization? And I said, yeah, okay, I'll bother go at it, but only for three years, which would have meant that in 1979 I would have been finished. So in 78, 79, with uh, the death of uh, 
Bill Hara, uh, Terry Cavanaugh, and, and Cease Purvis. Uh, it just, it just seemed to keep going. And there were things that I wanted to do, and it wasn't until last fall I finally said, you know, enough of this nonsense. There's going to be things going on forever, and uh, you're never going to get everything tidied up, so pick a point in history and, and let it go. But and going back to your question, I, I think really that Ron was more concerned in both cases with uh, the procedure that had been gone through rather than he was. I have never had any problem with him uh, at any time as an auditor. Matter of fact, he's usually one of the easier ones to work with. You know where he's coming from. He's quite direct, and his his uh, his opinions don't don't change very much. Well, the actual process do, do the aldermen have to to vote yes or no in front of you, or, or are you in the room when it happens? Or? No, no, you're not in the room when it happens. What usually happens is you get you get down to a small list, you know, say three or four or two or five or whatever, and uh, then they would vote and come to a consensus of opinion and say that, uh, you know, on balance, uh, out of 13 people, maybe eight say, I like Joe Doak, whoever that may happen to be. Then when they go into council, hopefully nobody makes any noise and it's a unanimous decision. So all the, the pre-thinking and the pre-arguing is done out, but the individual is not in the room when that decision is made normally. And do, do all the applicants face all the aldermen and the mayor uh, at, once, at once? Yeah. And, and sort of like a Senate uh, yeah. hearing, that sort of thing? But not necessarily, the, uh, it's not necessarily the case that all the aldermen are there. You may very well find that uh, 50% of them, 75% of them. Um, some for the very reason that, well, you know, I know who Doug Burroughs is, what do I want to go to an interview if you like? I've already got my opinion made up of that guy, am I going to vote for him anyway, or whatever? Yeah. So there's some that you know won't come in in any event, but strangers from out of town, people they don't know, you, you do tend to get a better attendance on those than you do with the in-house people. Uh, going back to your your days when you were just, that's in quotes, a commissioner. Mm -hmm. uh, what were some of the bigger projects that you feel you did a particularly good job on? Oh, you gosh, thought through. I think there were so many things. Uh, I found just about the same thing when I moved into being commissioner of utilities and engineering as I found when I took on the telephone department. All of the utilities had grow, sort of grown up like Topsy without any degree of commonology, of, of accounting, of uh, practices of planning and the like. There were, there were none of those things. Maybe because of the time in history when everybody was going flat out and you didn't have time to do those sorts of things. So they said. I disagree thoroughly. I don't think there's any time when you can't spend some time planning. But nevertheless, that was not part of the concept. So every one of the utilities uh, that were there, I went through them and set up common practices for their accounting procedures to be in line with the Public Utility Board. Sent a tremendous number of their people away and, and um, training to get them updated to do uh, the job that they were supposed to be doing. And again, with one or two exceptions, uh, which were uncomfortable, uh, people responded. They just had to be shown that this was really their job, and they took off. And that's that's normal. You, you, can, you, know, you get the type of individual that you have to. Some of them you pat on the head, some of them you kick at the other end, but there's some in between that aren't going to go anyway. They've made up their mind. They've spent, as I found in some cases, they've spent 30 years with the city and this is the way we did it 30 years ago and we're not going to change. And in today's uh, operations, that was impossible. So I had to actually ask a couple of them to leave the city. I had to find other jobs for some people in order to do it. But it, w it was a real area of responsibility that I, I thoroughly enjoyed. There was just so much to do. Some of the bigger jobs, uh, well, the Yale Smith Water Treatment Plant, we started that. The light rapid transit up until its completion of its first phase, I was responsible for all of that, and that was very interesting. I enjoyed that. Setting up uh, road maintenance and, uh, and uh, design procedures in the uh, engineering department, reorganizing every one of the departments without exception because they were pretty scrambling. Uh, utilities and engineering, the utility services area, the bill paying area, to go in there and set up uh, newer accounting methods, pull that one together. Uh, 
actually the, the uh, major area of the power to plan for the, uh, even in those days, to get them thinking about Genesee and what we were going to be doing about it. Finishing off the clover bar stations and getting them online. Interaction with the various other utilities to be sure that we were getting the best deal for the city of Edmonton. It was, it was just a tremendous area to get into. It, it just had arrived at a time where it was going to be such a mess that you'd never get anything done correctly, uh, to a point where it could now be taken a hold of and shaken and made a, a good good organization. I enjoyed it. I really did. It was a good time for me. Time went very quick. That's one of the reasons I think why I was there so long. Over the years, it must have totaled hundreds of millions, if indeed not over a billion dollars of a budget. Oh yes. Thing. Oh yeah. A lot of money to yeah. be responsible for. Yeah, it was. But of course, one of the, the real pluses about it was when you found some way to make a correction or to do something better. Then when you have that amount of money that you're you're dealing with, even making a one or two percent change, beneficial change, was a yeah, it was a lot of money. And of course, a lot of the a lot of the public will never know about them because they're not interested. They, you know, yeah, it's cost over ones that are make their best. That's right. That's right. No, it's, it was good, and uh, I guess uh, the Commonwealth Games, of course, was uh, right, right in between the two. We were planning for it, and then I actually was in it as a chief commissioner. They're, they're, I guess people really don't realize the number of decisions that you make and uh, things that you get out of. As most chief executives uh, say, and I presume you would be in the same boat, they tend to have very good people around them. Oh yes, you necessary. Know, uh, you know, if you're going to do a good job, you have to have like top-notch, you know, starting right with secretarial help, yep. executive assistance, the work. Who were some of the people who were around you? In your office uh, during both your commissioner chief commissioner time? Well, uh, to begin with, uh, I can't think of Bill's last name, but he was there. He was Commissioner Hampton's uh, EA for a while. When I was there on a temporary basis, he was uh, Hoosen, Bill Hoosen. He was very uh, helpful to sort of get started. But then Reg Bird came as my first executive assistant from the telephones to work with me and did an outstanding job. Uh, Ian Fraser was another one who's again came from the telephone area but with a wider background and uh, then he left and went into another area. Uh, Wayne Katie from the personnel department, all of these people. I've had one secretary all the way through, Miss Anna Buckler, and uh, she is without exception uh, the finest uh, secretary and support that I have ever had. So I went to a point where I could almost walk past her desk and give her about half a dozen letters and say, I don't like this, I like that, and so on, and she would do the letter. And if I wrote a letter in anger, when it came back to my desk, it would be changed and modified. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if I, you know, if the phraseology was wrong and I just didn't have time to, to work at it, I'd give it down and say, here, you know, run through this letter and straighten it up, that's what I want to say, and she would do it. And she has been a great help. It's people like that that really, you know, make your job so much easier. Indeed. Um, now, on, on the other, now all these people work for you. Now, the people you work for were essentially the aldermen and the yeah, mayor, right. you know. And I guess it was maybe four mayors that you worked under. Uh, well, actually, uh, in, in contact, five. They go back to uh, a dancer. Really? I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, he was here for just a year when I first started. And because of the delicate situation between the telephones, I got to meet him very well. Then, of course, uh, Ivor Dent and, uh, worked well with Ivor for a couple of sessions, both as the general manager of telephones and then later on as, as a commissioner. And then uh, Harlock went uh, for his 18 month mm -hmm. tour. Then Terry Cavanaugh for his finish of the tour. And then Purvis for two terms, well, term and a half. But, uh, it's great, yeah. I wonder if you could get maybe your impressions in a thumbnail sketch sort of way of each of those people. 
know, well, for instance, how, how was Dad served up to work for? Very crazy. He tended to believe that the political side of the fence was one side and the administrative side was the other. And he didn't get deeply involved in the administration. He, he expected you to do that. And when you were asked a question, uh, your opinion or your statement was accepted. And, you know, that was, that was gospel. That would help you if it was wrong, I suppose. But yeah. on the other hand, Jeannie, uh, he would carry that as his conversation from there. Mm -hmm. Very easy man to work with. And of course, he, he was ousted by Mayor Dent, wasn't right. he? Yeah. He ran for re-election. Yeah. And Ira Dent was around for two terms. Two terms, yeah. yeah. So he was the man for whom you worked the most, at least the length. Part. Well, I had straddled two, two of my administration chores with him. I was, uh, I was in his utilities and engineering, and then uh, for a long, long period of time with Ivor, almost, I guess, almost five years of that. Yeah. Now, uh, it's no, no. I, I'm sorry. It would be about three and a half years because the last year and a half that I was, and this is approximately uh, in utilities and engineering, was when Bill Harlow was there, mm -hmm. and then. I moved in to be chief commissioner when Terry Cavanaugh was mayor of the city, so it was all sort of in that year. Yeah, bits of three of them as, as utilities and engineering. Now, it's a matter of public record that Ira Dan is uh, left on the political spectrum. Yeah. Now, then uh, you take somebody like uh, Mayor Horlack, who's a well-known liberal, mm -hmm. and Terry Cavanaugh, well-known uh, Tory. Yeah. Uh, what's the difference between working for somebody like Ira Dan, who's, who's in that political sphere, as compared to, say, uh, Bill Horlack? Well, they were very different, of course. Uh, Ira had some of the same characteristics as Vince Dancer, as far as the administration was concerned. He was very strong, of course, on the liberal side, on the labor side of the house. And that was the one area where he did get overly concerned about things from time to time. And uh, I think towards the end of his term, his last he began to feel that the administration was really doing a fair job as far as the unions were concerned. But he did always have a very vital interest in those. In other areas uh, of administration, he tended to let the administration run with various checks and balances as, as they occurred. Uh, he, was a, he had a good mind. And when he put his mind to something that he didn't understand, you know, you write down to the very tail end of the thing, and you felt when he left that he had a pretty good grasp of the subject. Uh, much, uh, much like asking a question uh, just to hear your answer. Uh, I were more tended to hear the answer, and if he didn't understand the answer, not accept it, but want to know what was behind it, how he got there, and so develop his own expertise and knowledge in the area. And when he left uh, the discussion, you generally had a feeling that he knew at least enough to carry his own weight on it. But again, an individual who let the administration, you know, do their job and get on with it, and was inclined to come down with heavy boots if he felt that they weren't doing it, which is a fair enough way to understand. Did his boots come down upon you on occasion? No, I never. Uh, I I got along very well. Uh, the only person that I ever went to the floor with, and that's an expression was Bill Harlick, and uh, he and I used to have some real uh, Donnie works behind the scenes, because some of the methods that he used, which were the ones that were in his earlier term, he was a one-man band and ran the city, and there was nothing, you know, that he didn't know about or have his finger in, even down to the fellow with the shovel that was out on the job, felt that he owed his job to Mayor Bill Harlick. And that's an awful sort of responsible area. And I suppose when you've got a, a small nucleus of people, that's entirely possible. You can you can do that. When he came back, of course, it was a much larger organization, and an awful lot of the accounting procedures. If you were told to, to do certain thing, which was going to be costly to the citizens of Edmonton, under the new procedure, you had to find some money for it. Where in Bill's day, you did it, and then you figured out money and tidied it all up at the end of the year, and said, "Well, I guess we came out even." And uh, that's not the way to run a streetcar. So from time to time, he would issue orders, and I'd unfortunately get involved in the center of it, and we used to really tangled. But I must admit one thing, uh, much and all, as we had some good arguments, 
uh, if, you, if you could convince him, Bill, that you were right and he was wrong, that was game over. You know, he would take it and he would carry it and he would run it and nobody stood in his way. You know, that was the way it was going to be. But if you faltered somewhere along the, the, the line, uh, that was the worst thing he could do with it because he would really, he would never trust you again after that. You know, he would feel that you were trying to snow him a little bit. But a good man, a good businessman, uh, fortunately, uh, the type of guy who, who had, uh, he, he just done too many extreme things and his body just wouldn't keep up with it anymore. Uh, I, I guess you agree that he suffered from the, uh, the Diefenbaker syndrome, that, that he couldn't delegate power. Yeah, he wanted to have everything right under his own ballpark. You know. One of my problems was to convince him that he, he didn't have to do that. You know, he could, he could have this time to do whatever he wanted. We'd run the shop, but he'd tell us what, what he felt needed to be done, and he had the concurrence of counsel that we would do it. But when Bill Harlock, as an individual, came in and said, do this, uh, we had to account the council for doing this, and that meant taking money from some other budget without council's approval. So we would always say, you know, get council's approval and we'll do it, that's no problem. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to account for it at the end of the year, who's going to pay for it? Because now you're going back in against a bunch of, of politicians who are much better educated about budgets and the like. Would you agree that it would be fair to say that, that Dent and Horlap both had a strong leadership ability as far as council was concerned, mm -hmm. as opposed to, now, with all due respect to former Mayor Kavanaugh, he did have the trouble of the numbers in council, yeah. Yeah. but still there seemed to be that, in my opinion, the lack of leadership in Yeah, it was Kavanaugh. almost impossible in Terry's case to, to have leadership because he was set up from the point of view of... Set up as a writing. Yeah, <laughs> anybody that went into that particular job um, was, was really asking for trouble. And it was a very thin line that you had to walk along because the council became almost a 6-6 split. Even in the election, as you remember, of, of the mayor after Bill died, it was it sat at 6-6 for the longest time. They couldn't, I think they had at least three votes until finally somebody changed their mind and it was a 7-5 vote for Terry. But then immediately after that it went back to every other decision was almost a 6-6 vote and it was very difficult to get anything done from the administrator's point of view. But also, it was an, an ideal time to be, if you were one of these out six, it was a very difficult time to, to stand up and be counted because everything that you did was obviously going to be wrong. And uh, as long as you frustrated council's actions by not getting a decision, then you can always blame it on whoever was the leader at that time, supposedly. But being a mayor in the city of Edmonton, that's all you are. You're just one vote. You can pat all the baby's heads or whatever you like, but when it comes down to making a major decision, you're one vote on the council, no more, no less. And if you get people running against you, uh, that's when you really need leadership. And you've got to turn that around and get control. Everybody suffers from that. Bill Harlock and, uh, and I were both had the happy faculty of being able to keep your people generally in line. At least they were productive years and things went on pace and kept moving. In Terry's year it was so difficult to get decisions. We made progress, but not to the same extent as we could have. And not all Terry's fault by far. Because it was it was one of those situations that it was a no-win situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How would you uh, characterize former American Kavanaugh? Like, you know, for instance, uh, you describe Mayor Dent, the main thing seems to be uh, his labor interests seem to come to your mind. But uh, Mayor Horlack is, uh, is uh, running the show, seems right. to come to mind. What would be the main characteristic of somebody like Kavanaugh? Well, Terry was, uh, again, uh, another, another boss that I suppose. Uh, he tended to work very closely with the administration. In, in almost every respect, and agreed, took the administration's side on, on all the arguments, and took all the administration's arguments. And then the result was, of course, the administration bent over backwards to accommodate, to give him all the material and information that he needed. But Terry was a, is and was a, a gentleman of the, you know, of the old school, 
And I think it really frustrated him by being involved in, in such a division of council that he wasn't really making the progress that he wanted. It's very hard to, to, uh, to make concrete observations about a situation and an individual when the individual doesn't have control of the situation and he doesn't, he can't get a, a group together and maybe it was impossible, maybe the time was short, I don't know. But uh, without that, nobody in that job would have done uh, anything that was really a real beater. Most of the work was done up till that time, of course, for the for the Commonwealth Games. That was all planned in Kavanaugh's day and then executed when when Purvis came. No, I would I would I would say Terry is a, is and was a gentleman in, in every respect. As far as his operations were concerned, it was a very difficult time to discover. People had made up their minds. And uh, I'm not too sure how many of them had made up their mind they were going to run for council by that time and run for the mayor's position. But they, yeah, so they, they weren't really giving a fair show to anybody that they could run. A lot of politics. Yeah. 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 A lot of politics. And it, it, it sort of, for years, I guess, afterwards, uh, that's what really sort of started off this antagonism in council. And it's carried on to the last two councils. And it doesn't really help anything. Well, at least we're getting some some majority decision. Of course, the, the numbers are there to allow for a majority right. decision yeah. under Purvis, yeah. uh, who's now in his uh, second term. Second term. You know. yeah. uh, uh, how did you find working with Mayor Purvis? Well, Purvis, of course, uh, has expressed himself as being a businessman, small businessman, and he. Uh, came in with all sorts of ideas about how he was going to change everything around and, and make it an accountable system from a business point of view. And he was, I think, shocked to his boots when he discovered that really what he had on his, on his hands was a business organization. It, it had changed radically in, in the, the period when he was an alderman when he came in. I can remember Purvis the first time that he uh, sat on the Economic Affairs Committee and I went in with my first budget as a, as a from the telephone department presented it to him. And I had always been used to making out five year budgets with right with regions and you know why I wanted this, that, and other thing. And I made the presentation on the first thing and it was uh, I think it was an astounding experience. That was the first one out of twenty odd departments that had brought in any kind of a projection or any kind of a budget that you could read and understand. Which again shocked me because that again it was beginning to give me a feel I cut myself into <laughs> but I think uh, Fergus is a politician, uh, and, and uh, you know he spends a great deal of time at it. If it's not political, he's not that interested. Uh, Fairfire uh, has has one failing, which is unfortunate, is that he's inclined to take all the credit for everything that is said or done, whether he had anything to do with it or not, and to point the finger when he doesn't have an opportunity to become involved or doesn't want to become involved. And so very, uh, uh, although some good things have been done, it has served to destroy the administration's faith completely in, in council and in mayor, in, in that respect. It just uh, doesn't work. But on the other hand, he tends to leave the administration alone. Oh, no. No? No. No, he, he tends to, uh, he tends to become involved in in uh, areas where he doesn't really have a great deal of expertise and make decisions from a political viewpoint. Uh, and his, his uh, chairmanship of the commission board has resulted in the commission board looking more to him rather than looking to council. And some of the decisions that would normally go forward from the commission board as a technical decision now are becoming overly flavored with his impact at the mayor's level. And obviously, if you're looking for a new job or you want to keep your job, and the guy you're dealing with is the mayor and he's writing your job description, <laughs> giving you your kudos at the end of the year or recommending them, it makes it very difficult. But I, I, uh, I, I, I gain have a feeling it's something is born out of necessity. It got to a point where anything that he said as a mayor, council was voting against. And it was only when he realized that he can't run a one-man band under the organization there that he started courting the alderman back into place again. And so it's it's beginning to move. 
but for a long time it was every bit as bad as when Terry was there. We got a decision one week and got it, had it changed two weeks later. That's a Indeed it is. Um, you seem to have a very strong, and I didn't realize this in doing my research, a very strong bent for uh, for a county procedure. For, uh, uh, are there, is there any particular method like online budgeting or zero-based budgeting or the like, which is of interest to you personally? Right. Which do you favor? Well, I think you have a combination of, of some of the practices. Unfortunately, you know, the, the new kid on the block that comes in, you have to be very careful of it. If it's the sort of thing you really want. And some of the things that are good, I think what the city has is uh, an amalgam of, of two or three systems. Management by objectives, zero-based budgeting, and the like, and um, program budgeting. And I think the city has a good organization that fits in well. But that came out of the telephone, this one that I had instituted in telephones when I was there, and then it sort of spilled over into the into the uh, financial area and then from there into the whole of the city. And we took people from the telephone department and made a task force of them to, to set it all up. No, I, I only say that, and it, it really isn't my forte, don't misunderstand me, but it is one of the biggest areas that required attention in the city. Uh, the technical and the engineering side of the things, you know, that was done reasonably quickly. That there wasn't too much problem with that, and I enjoyed it. And it, it was, it was for me, and engineering was a step back because I was, I was operating in the future as a general staff engineer. Things that had been talked about or being dreamed about, or weren't committed to paper, um, and and are now coming into expense into into uh, in being, such as the digital telephone offices and so on, uh, to an area which was a plain operating area with all the trouble of being an old mechanical type system. So that transition for me wasn't difficult and the same thing occurred in almost every one of the other utilities. I had enough experience and exposure in other areas that, that wasn't any problem. I enjoyed it. But it was, it was, it was, you know, I just got staggered when I asked my first accountant in the telephone department, well, it's time to make up a budget. Where are your, where are your papers? Where are your and I was brought in one sheet of paper, and it said X number of million dollars plus 5% X number of million dollars, and I went down line by line. And I said, what's all this? And they said, this is the budget. And I said, well, what are the percentages? And they said, well, that's what we've been using for the last five years, so I guess it's good enough for this year. And I said, well, where's the validation? How do you know you need all this? Well, we'll budget it. We'll figure that all out at the end of the year. So, you know, those sorts of things stagger an individual who's used to the business practices. Mm -hmm. And so, my reason for saying they were they were probably the most uh, most demanding in my time because it was a it wasn't just true in the telephone department. I found out it was it was throughout the whole city system. Nobody counted for anything, and there was a general tidying up at the end of the year if you were. $10 million over in this department and $10 million under in this department or a series of whatever. Somebody in the finance department juggled it all so it all fell into place and the bottom line was zero. And I just, how the heck made people accountable or responsible was beyond me. When you were commissioner and chief commissioner, it was perhaps the greatest period of growth since the boom of about 1914. Mm -hmm. uh, now, it was a, the biggest problem, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that with all this growth and like we need all these new services, everything from sewers to playground, okay, how was the city able to handle all that growth and still keep taxes really in a rather affordable, I mean everyone complains about taxes, mm. I pay them, you pay them, but still they, they have been kept quite affordable, mm. you know, and I really, it's a big question, but in general, how was that handled? Well, we tried to uh, allocate a certain amount of money every year into those areas. And once the departments, once once the uh, the corporate policy planning office was set up, or looked more than one year in the department and started having the general managers look at five-year programs, then it began, began to become very obvious that you were talking about astronomical amounts of money in departments to create parks or to create roads. Or there no woods. Yeah, it, it was utterly impossible. You know, it just can't be done all in one year. So then it had to be started to be budgeted for and programmed so that it came in in an area that you could pay for it. And instead of having great hills that were going to run your taxes up 40% one year 
and the following year you had everything paid for the year before so they stayed flatter or, or a little reduction. What we tried to do was to schedule the costs so that they ran across on a fairly even keel. Notwithstanding, of course, that you know, you'd be interrupted by politicians wanting something particular that you hadn't planned on put in there which would demand money from one way or the other. And it's only now, of course, that they're beginning to understand that if you, if you have X number of dollars and that's what you've budgeted for, then the object of the exercise, if, you, if you're going to do something else over and above, then you've got to take something out, otherwise it doesn't come out even at the end. So that's, it's really a matter of planning to be sure you know where you're going. And of course, the other big thing was the provincial grant that came through. This material is a digitized audio recording from the holdings of the City of Edmonton Archives. For more information regarding the recording, please contact us by email at cms.archives at edmonton.ca, by phone at 780-496-8711, or on our online catalog at cityarchives.edmonton.ca.